Ernie? Hello, my father. How are you doing? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm still on hold on the other one. Let me cancel the other one. I'll come back here. Okay, okay sure. <laughs> Okay. All right, here we are. All got on the line together. We are on yes. chapter eight of Ron's okay. Yeah. One more thing, Ernie. I'm expecting a call from the chief of police, so <laughs> I may have to take that call if it comes through. Okay. Sure. Do I need to what? arrange bail money or? <laughs> Pardon? Do I need to arrange bail money? <laughs> it will be more than bail money. I don't think you can afford this. <laughs> no, uh, it, it's uh, it's a complicated. I don't want to mention it in this uh, podcast. Okay. But, uh, so, but uh, the, I don't know whether we can put it on hold and um, things like that in this podcast. I mean, we could just stop and then call back. Okay. And it'll reconnect it. Okay. All right. We'll, let's keep talking uh, as much as possible. Yes. Okay. So speaking uh, of the uh, long arm of the law, this episode yeah. was about, it's entitled Conspirators. This is uh, Ron Chernow's biography of John D. Rockefeller. And yeah. last episode was all about family life and whatever, but this episode, this chapter, was all about the Southern Improvement Company mm. and cabals and conspiracy and, yeah. um, you know, Collusion, I guess, another C word here. And, yeah. And you know, it's a very, it's easily the most controversial uh, part of his career, I think. Yeah. Because not just because of what happened, but because there's many different interpretations of it. Yeah. Like you know, the the idea is, is just to summarize is that the uh, Pennsylvania railroads wanted to cut a deal. Uh, where they would give certain refiners preferential access and rates and not just shut out all the other refiners, but make them essentially pay a hidden tax to the membership of the refiners. And they use sort of a loophole in Pennsylvania law. So strictly speaking, it was perfectly legal at the time in that there was no obvious law against it. But okay. it definitely seemed to violate the spirit of many of like the public charter that railroads were granted to uh, as common carriers, and yeah. it, it led to a violent backlash, literally violent, like with people rioting and burning things. Right. And right. the yeah. proven company ended up failing, and but in the process, the threat of this allowed what has become known as the Cleveland Massacre, where Rockefeller bought out all the almost all of the other cleveland refineries and mm. consolidated his power and so there's lots of controversies about the morality of this but there's also yeah. questions of like was this sic a real thing was it just a shell that he used for this role was he yeah. being generous in buying these people out because they were doomed anyway uh, did rockefeller himself um you know, do anything at all unethical or wrong in this process. And so there's this huge range of issues around yeah. this. Um, and, of course, this ties in some of the themes we talked about last week about uh, is there a distinction between public and private morality? Uh, mm -hmm. How much of an obligation do we have to consider alternate perspectives? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, there's a lot going on in a relatively small space um so that's just the frame to get things started yeah sure yeah i think this is a little bit more serious than the what we were talking about earlier and because this almost borders on illegality like you were mentioning and uh, the sic uh i think at one point did he deny that he was involved in that. I don't remember the, so, 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 uh, the I, I think the the public statements are. You know, he was definitely a part of it. Um, yeah. He, I think he said he sort of deprecated it. He said, "Oh, it was just this little thing that they were trying to do. I just went along with it to humor them. I never thought yeah. it was going to go anywhere." That was right. kind of, I think, the, the sense he had. As opposed to the author's claim is that well, he didn't start it, but he was the person who deeply believed in it and yeah. kind of kept the faith. So everyone 
one else would stay in line with it when with the pressure heated up. And secondly, yeah. he ruthlessly took advantage of it to um, force consolidation among the Cleveland refiners in a way that they perceived mm. as sort of heavy-handed and cruel and manipulative, even though mm. he considered it very generous and wise and gracious. Yeah, like you mentioned earlier that, you know, they would have gone bankrupt anyway or they would have failed anyway, and he's kind of saved, saved that, uh, something like that. That may be, you know, we can talk about what is a good business practice to buy out your <laughs> opposition, and that way, you know, they don't compete against you. Uh, I don't know, is it done in uh, in uh, the tech circles nowadays? I mean, if somebody yeah, comes up with an idea. Yeah, then they, they acquire the company and bury it. Um, is yeah, the, okay. um, kind of the, the thesis. And for years, there were conspiracy theories that mm-hmm. the oil companies were buying up all the electric car patents and solar cell patents to prevent <laughs> competitors mm. emerging. Whereas, oh, in I fact, see. nowadays, the oil companies are trying to, like, investing in these things as a hedge against the industry oh, going, okay. Okay. Uh, being okay. consumed. Um, and, you know, the patents have all expired and didn't really solve the problem. So, but the the interesting thing is that um so let's give the let's give the uh, the positive spin on Rockefeller first okay. now before that there are two issues here right that I'm we're going to okay. talk about one is the SIC issue and that I refresh my memory did the SIC make uh, uh, contracts with the railroad companies or it was Rockefeller uh, standard company so, so SIC was a shell corporation yeah. It was started by the railroad companies, mm. and it basically gave a um, legal cover for all mm. sorts of private backroom deals that were not public. Mm. Okay. And so there were a lot of deals and pricing arrangements that everyone agreed to yeah. inside yeah. the SIC. Um, only for members of the SIC, right? Only that for the members pricing of the SIC. Was, yeah. Okay, and the second right. issue is, of course, the buying of uh, all the other refineries or, or the even Cleveland massacre. Things. Yeah, or, or, or the, the thing, not just refineries. I think he bought uh, oil wells also, right? I mean, well, no, but I mean, the Cleveland massacre itself specifically refers to the Cleveland refineries that he consolidated. Oh, okay. There's lots oh, of right. other things so, that happened at the same time, and importantly, the SIC never got off the ground in terms yeah. of being a going concern, someone pre-announced the rates sort of by accident, and that led to this massive backlash such mm. that, you know, the, the I think it was the original Pennsylvania Railroad that had proposed it basically gave up. And so they kind of dismantled it before there was any major legislation or judicial action. So there was okay. never any actual oil shipped under the SIC contracts. Okay. So uh, now we can go back, and then you wanted to talk about putting a positive spin on it, or what? Or how he put yeah, a positive spin on it. Yeah, so let's give Rockefeller's perspective on this, right? Which is yeah, that right, okay. the um, the back then the refiners were locked. So the oil industry itself was in this massive boom and bust cycle, right? Like right. they run out of oil and prices would get high. Then someone yeah. discovered another gusher, and oil prices would plummet. And so this led to this insane gyrations of the market. Yeah. And this that was the first order thing was the oil well was price. So the first order effect was discovery of oil. The yeah. second order effect was these massive cycles in the price of oil. Yeah. The third order effect is that the refiners uh, had uh, very uneven costs and cash flow, depending on how much oil there was and what the price was. Yeah. Right, and so the fourth order effect was that they had to borrow money from the bank to, um, you know, have the capacity to take advantage of when they happened. Right, so they had to build up the capacity to refine a lot of oil, so that when there was a big boom, they could take advantage of all that oil. Um, this is including order, Rockefeller. This is including yeah, Rockefeller. All, yeah, all of them did this. Yeah. Uh, and then the fifth order effect is that 
that led to um, vast overcapacity because they would, you know, buy all these things and then based on a certain assumption of well, how much oil there was going to be in the future, and if there was less than that, then they too had to massively cut their rates. You know, they, 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 there was so much refining capacity that they had no bargaining power with the oil wells. Right. And so they would have to pay, you know, uh, and, and then and then the sixth order effect is that they had horrible accounting. So nobody besides Rockefeller actually knew what was profitable. And so people would make irrational decisions mm. that, you know, where, where it's like, you know, I, I'm going to be losing money on every barrel of oil, but at least I'm getting a little bit of cash to pay off my bank debt. So it's okay. Mm. So there was literally a race to the bottom. Is, yeah. I, I think he described it as irrational in the sense that people were not able to make, you know, calculations about what was profitable to do. They would just borrow ridiculously and then price insanely. And, you know, and the best case scenario is that, you know, the foolish idiots in the market would quickly go out of business so the industry could consolidate, right? That's how capitalism is supposed to work. If you make right. bad decisions, you get punished by Mr. Mm -hmm. Market. But the yeah. eighth order effect is because nobody understood the market, the banks would just keep loaning money. Mm. <laughs> and so they would keep financing these insolvent refineries because they thought there was, and so the whole system of producers and refiners and financing was horribly, horribly broken. And the consequence okay. of this was mm. that um, um, uh, the, is there were two things that, that I think bothered Rockefeller uh, wisely. One was that this cycle of boom and bust was just mm. horrible for the workers, because people would get hired right. and fired, yeah. and yeah. you know, and like there was one time when Rockefeller had to do layoffs and it broke his heart. Yeah, you know right. that he would have to, give yeah. up, you know, hire these people and make these promises, and he couldn't plan for the future. Mm -hmm. um, but then the flip. So, sorry, you yeah. still there? Hello? My audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still here. Okay, yeah. Hello? So on the one Hello? hand, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand. If you try to keep up with the, the supply and the demand, mm. you end up building for the top of the market, and mm. you end up, um, you know, you know, having to do layoffs and all sorts of horrible, stupid gyrations. On the flip yeah, side, before you, uh, yeah, before you proceed further, let me interrupt you for a second. There's one other factor also you may have to say at this juncture because of all this going on and because of either the failure of the other guys or the uncertainty of the market or whatever, when Rockefeller offered to buy them out, uh, they had to take it. They had to pay off their debts or, you know. Uh, let, me, yeah. let, let me just wait a bit before I go, go there. Okay. If we can. Okay. Let me okay. talk about the negotiations. But, but there are two okay. things that I think that were driving to motivations. One was that, you know, the oversupply was just, or the, the, the boom and bust cycles were just ruinous on the employees' lives, right? right? But if you had just, but it was also bad for consumers. You know, there were so many people that were so, you know, fly-by-night and desperate that there was uneven quality, uneven production, uneven supply. So the market, so like there's, on the supply side, it was ruinous on the employees. But on the demand side, it was ruinous on customers. They had no, nothing that they could rely upon, nothing consistent, nothing coherent. They couldn't trust their quality. And as a consequence, and maybe this is the most important thing, is that the, um, the market was, was, was immature, and Rockefeller believed in the power of oil. He believed yeah. – that you know, cheap, affordable, consistent illumination would be transformational to society. Yeah. And this vision of a beautiful world where you're not killing whales, where poor school yeah. children can study <laughs> at night, you know, yeah. like this world was being held back by this literally idiotic, insane, self-destructive behavior. Mm. And it's like, oh my God, somebody has to do something. Yeah. You know, this is an intolerable situation. So this is yeah. the this is the frame of mind that we're starting from. 
is there's this yeah. beautiful future, there's this horrible present where everybody is suffering. Like, yeah. somebody needs to fix this. And, like, this is, I think, completely accurate. I, I really believe in this perspective mm. that, like, the situation was horribly broken. Somebody mm. had to do something. There, were, there was no precedent for this. Right? Right. No one understood any of it. Yeah. Like, and the railroads themselves have the same problem. Yeah. That, you know, the capacity competition. And so unfettered competition without market discipline is a disaster. Right. <laughs> you right. know, because nobody knows what they're doing and nobody even realizes they don't know what they're doing. And so, yeah, so that's the backdrop of, of what's mm. going on. Yeah. Okay. So then we can say that, okay, so then there gets the question of, okay, so what did Rockefeller do about it? Yeah. Um, and so because this thing was insane, so, right, okay, so let me get you and make your point, because I think that's the next thing that's interesting to talk about, is how he approached the Cleveland refiners and, what, and how they responded and how they felt. Okay, before we go there, you know, we ah. briefly talked about the SIC. I have a question. I don't remember. Who were the uh, other players in the SIC? Um, because, you know, sometimes who you um, get involved with in business also will have effect on how you do things and what happens, right? So right. Remind, refresh my memory. SIC, were there a couple of other players uh, who are partners and also the railroads and uh, something like that? Yeah, so my understanding is that mm. this was started by the Pennsylvania Railroads. By the way, the, okay. uh, the chapter title I'm going with is Railroading Morality. Oh, um, okay. Mm. Um, the word railroad has, you know, two meanings. The literal meaning of, a, you know, a bit, but all shoving things through yeah. people's wills. Uh, yeah. And both of these are happening. So the Pennsylvania Railroaders, had the same problem of ridiculously insane boom and bust cycles, oversupply, overcompetition. And so right. they suggested that's using the Pennsylvania laws of the SIC. And my understanding is they brought in the other railroads, uh, like the other mm. regional railroads. Mm. Um, and, but the, the goal was to really get all the, to get like partner refiners who would play ball with them give them a steady, reliable source at a steady, reliable price. Right. And then they created these massive incentives to say, and it's always hard to create a, to, to be fair, it's really hard to create a secret cabal. Uh, you know, we always worry about these secret conspiracies. The secret conspiracies are, are really hard to enforce because it's a cartel and people can cheat. Yeah. Right? And yeah. how do you keep yeah. people from cheating, especially in an era before the internet where you can't right. observe anything? And yeah. so they tried to build in all these incentives for people mm. to play ball, where you would yeah. get rebates and sort of kickbacks yeah. on all these things. And so the idea is that the people who are insiders got cheaper rates and got a rebate on all the other refiners who use the system. Mm. Uh, and so they had incentive to play ball and not talk about it. Um, but also to, uh, there's an interesting design pattern if you ever go to mm. a fast food restaurant and it mm. says, if you don't get a receipt, please call us and your meal is free. Oh, really? Okay. Have you ever saw that? Yeah. And the no, idea is, mm. okay, yeah. The reason was is that sometimes cashiers used to pocket the money. Right. And not tell the restaurant owner. And not so this way, well. by giving the customers an incentive to essentially tattle on the cashier, mm -hmm. it gives it keeps the cashiers honest. Right. Right. Because they knew right. that they have to ring up a receipt and print it and therefore the social record and therefore. So, like, they, they, they tried to build, in some ways, a very clever decentralized system to make this cabal work in order to achieve this thing. So, this is really important, right? They, 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 um, um, sorry, let me switch, um, out of the car here. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm. So the 
so this is where it gets interesting. Right? So clearly Rockefeller has a a good vision, possibly mm. the only sane vision of what the end state of the interest industry needs to be, right? Yeah. Where you have an appropriate amount of supply matched to the demand. So sorry, uh, the refiners matched to the oil to the railroad so that everyone has a sustainable, because this is the thing that's interesting, right? Is if you have a sustainable business, then you can make promises and be held accountable. Yeah. Right. See, so, one right? of the problems was he needed the railroads because they were in the middle of the country and not near the Oil east coast or the west coast. So he needed them to transport his products to other parts of the country as well as abroad. Uh, right, then everyone needed everyone, right? The, the producers, yeah. were the, the oil wells were one business in one location, the oil creek. Yeah. The refiners, yeah. there were refiners in Pennsylvania, Cleveland, et cetera. And then yeah. there were the railroads. And yeah. all three of them, and I guess there was also the banks, even though we don't see them very much here. Oh, yeah, right. But they're not all, yeah, but they're all locked into this dysfunctional cycle. Where there are, yeah. because there's so many different pieces, and because, and this is actually important, because information flowed very slowly back then. Those days, yeah, right. We're right. talking about the right. 1890s. And, and, and you couldn't, you know, yeah. And so, you know, the, the, when you have a four phase, you know, we talked about like, you know, the, what is it, the, the eighth order effects here, right? I mean, anything more than first order effects, people have a hard time keeping in their head. And mm. this sort of complicated system, you know, with you know modern computers, you can imagine building a decentralized marketplace that sends price signals and people can plan yeah. around it. But it's literally inconceivable in the you know 1870s or 60s, whenever this 90s, is. 90s, yeah, 90s. In the 1890s, by this point already. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I don't think it's 1890s yet. I think we're a little earlier, but regardless. I see. Yeah, this may be, yeah. Yeah. Right after the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. So after the Civil War, did the 1870s. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like it's 1873, but I'm just guessing. Uh, anyway, the point was, is that, okay, so Rockefeller has a clear picture of an end state that'll be better for everybody. And then the, the, the question is, how does he get there? Right, and this is where it gets dicey. So the first thing is, and he sort of dragged into this, but he seems to have got along pretty gladly, if not uh, vigorously, is a secret cabal, right? right. Is one kind of imagined a world where you tried to get people to sit down at the table publicly and openly and say, look, this is just not working. Um, you know, let's just agree to do all these rational things and we will openly, um, you know, like, uh, you know, this is what we call it the voluntary industry consortium, right? Yeah, and, but, but Ernie, how is it possible? But, but, admit, but that's, that's, that is, this is the alternative and that alternative seems extremely unrealistic. That was my point. Yeah. See, the thing is, if you're going to be building up your business, you don't want your competitions to know your plans and things like that. So how can you do it openly? It has to be done uh, privately, right? Well, that seems to be the case, right? And we'll have to play this out, right? So, so, so as far as anyone involved could tell or imagine, in order for this to work, it had to be done in secret. Right. Right. So, but then the, so you have this concept of, this is where the words like cabal and collusion and, yeah. and conspiracy, like the title in Ron Chernow's chapter is conspiracy. It was a conspiracy to say, hey, we are going to do this thing and we're going to do it in a way that makes us rich yeah. and puts everyone else out of business. Right. Yeah. You know, it literally was a conspiracy. So in order to, and you know, the word conspiracy, understandably, has a very negative connotation, right? Right. Uh, you know, and so in order to do this noble, good thing, they have to mm. do something that is A, secretive, mm. and B, self-serving, right? Because it's not like they are going to impoverish themselves by doing this, right? They're setting themselves right. up. Right. As, and so uh, when you have something that is both secretive and self-serving, <laughs> mm. it is... Um, definitely not. It is at the very least morally gray. <laughs> yeah, that's where the other part right? comes in. Yeah, because you know you can justify some of those things 
because he's also taking a risk, right? I mean, he's when he's doing something that's not been done before, uh, you don't know how it's going to end. So he's taking a risk. He can look at it, but are you doing it in a moral way? It may be legal. It may, again, we go back to the same question. Whatever is legal or moral, is it unethical and vice versa? Yeah. And if it's okay. not moral, in what sense is it not moral? Right, right. Uh, right. You know, so, so certainly from an ethical perspective, yeah. in terms of the business norms of the, of the country at the time, it yeah. was immensely unethical, right? Is mm. that everyone agreed, and today it would all be illegal. Yeah. Uh, because they, uh, uh, you know, we really huge downside to letting companies do this. On the other hand, um, you know, one could argue that ethics, I mean, there's a case to be made. Uh, I'm not going to say an endorsement position, um, um, but that, um, in t is that if there is no market, if there is no governance, hmm. then um, brutal means to enforce order may be the most ethical option. Like to sit there and do nothing mm. is a like like there's interesting thing about like, given the options he had between mm. doing a secret cabal and doing yeah. it. Uh, uh, so uh, this is what gets interesting. Is I guess there's two senses of the word. Uh, mm. uh, let me use another word: pro-social mm. versus ethical. Because this is mm. interesting, and I think this is I guess maybe a lot of the conflict about Rockefeller. Is usually we think of ethics as this is how you behave in order to make sure that you, that everyone in the in the society is being treated well, right? Like okay. medical ethics, right? You want to make sure that all the stakeholders are well informed yeah. and being treated wisely. Right? You're not, you know, unknowingly running experiments on patients, for example. Right, right, right. And so mm -hmm. the the idea of ethics is to be is to ensure people are acting in pro-social ways rather than selfishly. Yeah. You know, manipulating others yeah. for their own gain, yeah. right? But yeah. the funny thing is that um, mm. there's this interesting chasm here between ethical mm. behavior and pro-social mm. behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Because, oh, like at the end of this, everyone is more or less better off than they were, you know, yeah. the consumers, that, right? And like a lot of his competitors, he bought out, became members of Standard Oil, and you know, got stock and yeah. status yeah. and whatever. Um, mm. So it, it, there's certainly a case to be made that Rockefeller's actions were pro-social, even if mm. they were unethical. And this is the really awkward thing about Rockefeller, right. uh, is right. that the social norms of his time were sort of self-destructive. Yeah. And so you you have this chasm now. Uh, so yeah. On a side note. The Things they did with the buying out the other people, either the oil wells or the refiners, that was not done in secret. It had to be done publicly, right? There's no way he could yes. do it secretly. Well, but uh, the enough. other part, right, the person, the actually, let's, 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 let me let me put a pin on that. Uh, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, but 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 uh, getting uh, special deals with the uh, railroad companies and rebates and all that, uh, that. You know, that's two ways thing. One, you're getting a benefit, and also you're preventing your competition from uh, getting the uh, upper hand. Like they, so, they don't get to join the cabal too, either, right? It's not a yeah, right, and fair yeah, offer. Yeah. Right. So, right, but, uh, but, but so, your first point, though. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Give me the. Uh, well, your I first point, yeah. the, the purchase, the final purchase was a public act, but the negotiation. Right beforehand yeah. were private, which is important, right? If Rockefeller mm. had just got out and said, okay, this is what's happening. Um, mm. You know, I'm gonna buy everyone for this standard price based on these criteria, you know, then all the refiners could have ganged up on their side and said, hey, right. let's, you know. But is this practice? That's not good well, I, practice. But, like, even but, today. But, but let me just point out that, no, but I'm pointing out that the secrecy and privacy mm. of his negotiations with the original refiner gave mm. him asymmetric information, mm. right? He knew what was going on 
Mm. Uh, and none of them did. Yeah. And therefore, and, and, and it's important, is that now one could argue that Rockefeller acted wisely and generously, right? Mm. Because these people yeah. were doomed anyway, and whatever. Yeah. And that may well be true, but we don't know because he was the only one who had all of the information, right? right? Is that, right. And so we could take his word for it, yeah. but they felt. You know, and it is it, it, it is hard to not sympathize with Rockefeller because these people really do seem to be horrible businessmen, right? right. They are like yeah. they're they're terrible at accounting, they're terrible at um, management, you know, yeah. long-term management, investing, the, the quality control, yeah, right, like, yeah. right? And like, and it's easy to look at their complaints about Rockefeller bio and say, like, yeah, the reality is you would have kept on going and been massively in debt and then failed. And had nothing. Completely. That is the most likely yeah, outcome. Least he bailed you out. He bailed you out at right. least. You know, you, so but what they were complaining was after the fact. Yeah, they were complaining after the fact. Well, they well, found during out the time, they were happy about it. And some of them resisted. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing, right? Is that, yeah. so, okay, so that's the pro-Rockefeller perspective. Yeah. But, but, right. but, but we look at it, so the question is, okay, from their perspective, how do they feel? It's like, okay, here's these people who are taking enormous risks managing their livelihood, trying to do, you know, take advantage of the thing. He believes in the same glorious future that Rockefeller does on the consumer side, right? Yeah. And yet, oh my goodness, this is a problem I run into all the time. And yeah. yet, they're so focused on the end result of mm. what the world could be like that mm. they act sort of uh, naively to do that and then, as a result, the supply side is an utter disaster that directly contradicts the demand that they're trying to fulfill, right? Is it, their, their vision is of customers getting this amazing product in great quality at a great price. Right. And, but what they end up doing is, let's build more refineries and build more stuff, which ends up actually destroying the very – they're killing the golden sure. goose. Right. With right. their actions, right? Because yeah. of their naivete, because of their short-sighted self-interest. And yeah. Rockefeller, with his long-sighted self-interest, sees a much better way forward. Yeah. Okay? But because of that, um, uh, or maybe let's say a long, well, okay, we'll give him long-sighted for now, but there's an interesting, maybe we should call it mid-sighted, though, in, in mm. retrospect. Because... Mm. You know, the at least from the context of the Southern Improvement Company, mm. you know, that and legal entity that was a failure because they were relying on secrecy. And once the secrecy mm. was out, the you know, this is the problem with doing things in secret that are against that are against other people's perceived self interest is once they find mm -hmm. out, they will attack you. Yeah, right. Right? Right. And mm. um and this is why some people think that Rockefeller just played along with the SEC as an excuse for the Cuban massacre. But anyway, the point was that these people, they felt like they were making a good, honest effort to build mm. a viable business. Mm. And then this, this young upstart creates a secret cabal of all of these people, mm. excludes them, doesn't mm -hmm. tell them about it, doesn't give them a chance to join, mm -hmm. and then you know, makes them an offer they can't refuse. Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> yeah. the implicit threat is that, like, you know, you should sell to me now because, by the way, if you don't, then you will, uh, you know, be crushed by these prices and the lack of demand or whatever. And this is the phrase railroading morality. Like, one could oh, argue okay. that making mm. them do this was the moral mm. thing to do because they were on this self-destructive path. But yeah. they were very much being railroaded. And this is the thing that's interesting. What makes their perspective, what makes me sympathetic to the refiners mm. is that Rockefeller was using his power and his secret private knowledge, mm. you know, and his secret collections to impose his morality on them. And see, one could argue is, that that's well, a good that's thing, a, but, but, see, that's, but, I, yeah. Yeah, but, go ahead. but I think it's worth acknowledging that's what he's doing. He is imposing a morality on them, which may be better for them in the long run, but the yeah. fact that they're imposing it 
is what they resented. Yeah, see, but they could have done the same thing. You know, I mean, there were, there were Pennsylvania Railroad was not the only railroad, so they could have had other no, railroads. There, but there's only a small number of railroads, Dad. If you've got those three sewn up, there is no counter cabal. Oh, I see. Either okay. you're in favor. They couldn't have. Right, so this is, right, so, you see, right, so, like, in theory, right, like, Rockefeller, because of past choices, mm. was uniquely well-positioned to take advantage of this. Mm. Um, and so by the time they found out about it, it was too late. Right. They'd already gotten the center square of the test board, and they had a more or less unified, coherent cabal. And mm. to be fair, the, what did happen was all these, uh, you know, the producers banded together and created a producer coalition, and et cetera. Yeah. And so other places, other people were able to uh, weather the storm, fight back, and block the SIC. But in Cleveland, mm. you know, because Rockefeller was sort of quietly sending them up one by one, yeah. right? By the time they realized what was happening, it was too late. Right? Yeah, he had already right. yeah. he had already run the board, and yeah. there was nothing left because now, like, yes, if someone else had been farsighted and had created a consortium, you know, yeah. a, 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 if they'd realized that Rockefeller was the enemy. They could have banded mm-hmm. together against him, but yeah. you know when someone amasses power in secret, uh, mm. you know, and connections and leverage, then there's not, you know, is that you feel like a victim. You know, and, and it was interesting when we talk about this idea of railroad morality. I yeah. can't help but think about the British conquest of India. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right, because India was yeah. squabbling kingdoms, <laughs> and you know, and they play them off. The, I mean, it, it's like. You know, I don't know how you feel about this. This is maybe a good time to have that conversation. Because mm-hmm. I think you can see both sides. There's people mm-hmm. who think it's a wonderful thing that the British civilized India and made it a unified country, moral. And people see it yeah. as a horrible thing. Oh, yeah. it, it was basically a horrible thing. The, what I, the good things were just a byproduct. Some, sometimes uh, it was uh, uh, without their intention, unintentional byproduct. Some other things that they did because you know they needed the, so the good things are the bad. The good things are, so the good things or the bad things were unintentional byproducts. Both of them. Both of them. The good good things were also unintentional byproducts because they needed the transportation system. They needed the communication system for their uh, their purposes. But then it helped uh, the Indian people in the long run. But uh, I don't think the. Bad things were unintentional byproducts. They were intentional byproducts. Taking Indian um, uh, cotton to England and making cloth and bringing it back to India to sell it to us, that was not really an unintentional byproduct. It was intentional. They wanted to make okay. money on it. Right. So, 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 uh, so okay, let's slow down. So there's certainly some so, things they did intentionally, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's just a question. This raises the question, what was their intention? In taking mm. over India, was it to gain at you know because they probably had multiple intentions. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Initially, they wanted their uh, company uh, to uh, be able to the Dutch East, the, the Dutch East India Company, right? No, no, yeah, the British East India Company is uh, British East. India oh, right, sorry, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, and they wanted to, uh, which was in competition uh, with the Dutch and everybody yeah. else, right? Yeah, so. right. Yeah. I mean, we can see a similarity there because eventually, basically, the British East India Company uh, is similar to Rockefeller. They bought out all the, all the other people, competitors. So the, the the Dutch East India Company is no more. The French East India Company is no more. <laughs> the Danish East India Company is no more. And we could argue India was better. So this is the thing, right? Because on the one hand, like Mm. competition is good because then you can, Mm. you know, give. But if if everyone is fragmented, competition Mm. actually doesn't help, right? Like if you have relative market power as a consumer or as Mm. as a like, like if India had been a unified market that could negotiate, Mm. like it is now. We're negotiates yeah. with the, you know, Russia yeah. and India and the mm. India is a wonderful, not so much China because they have a feud with China, but they could sort of play mm. the Russia and, Indi- and U.S. off of each other. And that was they a good strategy have, yeah. for India. And they, they do in some yeah. ways. 
yeah. right? And, and, but but if India is a bunch of fragmented, uh, you know, city states, it was never That was a good byproduct, Ernie. That was one of the uninstilled byproducts. They they united India. And well, other, here, here's the question, though. But, but here, yeah. do you think that was unintentional, or was the goal yeah. to have a unified market? So that it was a like they didn't want to have to deal with 50 different rajas. They wanted a unified uh, India so they could have a predictable supply. It could have been, could have been, but um, the problem was um, uh, some of the things that they did. They didn't know that they were going to do. This. I kind of happened, I think, because uh, they kept uh, acquiring more rajas. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily, and I think after a while, it was not just uh, for marketing, it was for power. After a while, after yeah. a while, it became a matter of uh, the East India Company was no longer there. The, 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 the government of uh, Britain, the Kingdom of Britain, took over. So then it right. became and, and a more. Uh, it was not. Political. Political, it was not uh, economical. It was more. Political. Not purely economic. Right, there was yeah, still the imperial economy. funny is that, like, the, and, and that's something I don't actually know the story of how they nationalized the British. I would assume that part of the argument was humanitarian. Like, it's, it, we shouldn't just have this, you know, capitalist company running the lives of 100 million people. Yeah. You know, if we're going to actually run, if we're going to effectively rule them, we should just honestly rule them. <laughs> right? And so, <laughs> right. And what's interesting, I guess, there's like there was intended versus planned versus aligned, right? Yeah. Like there's certain things you say that like once you start, once you have a certain um, intent or a certain uh, once you have certain incentives in place, actually, mm. then yeah. the incentives create a logic of its own that require you to do certain other things. So yeah. raising up intellectual class of education, having a uniform system of law. Like there's all these things that are uh, entailed. That is the word. There are certain things which are entailed once you start down this road. Like there are yeah. necessary consequences of that. And yeah. sometimes you're aware of that. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're intended to do that. And there's a big distinction between unintended consequences and being unaware of consequences. So right. if you know that this horrible thing is going to happen. It's not what you intended. Mm. Like, mm. it feels like there's still some culpability there. Like, for example, yeah. uh, leaded gasoline. Like, the oil companies actually knew that there was the risk of lead contaminating the environment or even a likelihood, right. mm. and they chose to ignore it. Because right? right. it wasn't what they intended. And, and that yeah. created what they think. Yeah. Hello? You're cutting, you're cutting you off. Know, uh, Hello? Still there? Yeah, still there? Yeah, yeah, one, uh, you were cutting off. Okay. Uh, you were cutting off. Yeah, that was a weird dead spot, not where I usually get mm. dead spot. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but yeah, mm. unintended versus unaware. And so yeah. the, but anyway, enough there. So yeah. clearly there Going were some aspects of the British thing that were, so the, the thing is, is that what, what I think, I would argue what Brita, Britain really wanted was a reliable, predictable source of supply for whatever raw materials they're getting from India. Oh, yeah. And, no, not just one part was, of that. Yeah, labor. They had all kinds of other things, yeah. So, but it was mostly, but the, the, being the, an empire is mostly about raw materials, whether that's people or products. No, see, the Ernie, logic in, of in those days, yes? uh, in those days, in the mm -hmm. olden days, the people you conquered pay tribute. So that's right. happening too, yeah. So, so well, there yeah, was income I mean, also yeah. coming in. And then because uh, they had this uh, huge uh, colonies, different colonies, uh, the British uh, economy improved, right? Oh, so it was, it was, people jobs, the army Don't forget, this was the first industrialization where yeah. Britain was, you know, the first country to go through the process of becoming an industrial economy. Yeah. Right? This, this had never happened before. And they, became, and they used their empire to become a global industrial economy. Right. Which, right. you know, is, um, you know, and, and this is profound because this, again, going back to the Rockford example, no one had ever done this before. 
right. your hands to be an empire meant that either you were extracting natural resources like gold, like you know the Spanish did in America, or you were just conquering land uh, to have more serfs and peasants, you know, or slaves, whatever, to till the ground on your behalf. Yeah. You know? uh, and you know maybe some. But the, the important thing is that because they were trying to create a modern industrial empire, they uh, what what that entailed was you know unifying India's infrastructure, uh, creating a, an intellectual class, uh, a common um, you know business culture, bureaucracy, you know, yeah, all bureaucracy, these, bureaucracy, all these yeah. things, you know the British Raj. Yeah. Uh, the license Raj, I guess they called it, right? With the bureaucracy, whereas rule by rule by licenses, which you know <laughs> unified the country and became a massive source of corruption, and maybe we'll get into bureaucracy yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, later. But yeah. like this was the sorry, uh, and so it's easy to see. You know, so you're saying so you're 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 sort of superficial or your your quick sort of one sentence summary is that they had selfish motives, um, but they had some positive unintended consequences. Right, right. Yeah. And I think you, and, know, uh, we, you can say the comparison between Rockefeller and the British Raj, basically he was building an empire. Similar uh, yeah. tactics. He may have done the divide and conquer thing too. Uh, yeah. Just like the British did, you, and then, you know, like one railroad against the other, right? So yeah. then, uh, pretty soon you get all of them. <laughs> so, and he was building an empire. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is that. Meaning to. Hmm. Right. And the thing is, it's not like you know. For example, like you know, they said, well, you know, they had this very exploitive market for Indian cotton, right? Where yeah. they, you mm -hmm. know, right. On the other hand, before that, there was no market <laughs> for Indian cotton. That's true. Right? Yeah, you could say no that. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. right? You know, it's like like they 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 created a market and then they exploited it. Which is different than subverting an existing market, kind of the way Rockefeller did, mm -hmm. right? Um, in that there was existing producers, um, and sure, you know, the British industrial weavers put the you know the home weavers out of business in India, you know, but yeah. like that was going to yeah. happen eventually, and you, you know, and that you know, is and, why like, Gandhi so, went back to home right. and things. Yeah, so yeah, right. Um, and this is the thing, you know, and I mean, India's still kind of grappling with this question of, do we get forward investment in technology to improve yeah. our standard of living, or do we, I mean, every country deals with this, right? Well, like America they, is doing they, they this onshoring thing. Yeah, eventually they capitalized on the IT revolution. Right, but right. you know, like like the U.S. is, but there's a question of, uh, <laughs> you know, even now, where do you draw the line? America is doing this onshoring thing. You know, everything that was offshore to China, they realized, well, actually, no, we do want to do that stuff in-house, even if it's more expensive. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, it's easy to take rigid, simplistic, moralistic positions on these things. But I yeah. think there's a fair amount of nuance worth having. Uh, yeah. I had a fascinating conversation. The most interesting conversation I had about international trade mm -hmm. was uh, our college group had a, had a dance. And so there was this lady, this girl who was... Uh, like a diehard liberal. Oh yeah, it's so evil that America is, mm. you know, outshoring all these jobs to other countries and mm. leaving American workers idle. I said, okay, right. and we're like literally like waltzing while we're having this conversation. Said, yeah. Well, what about from the perspective of all those workers in other countries who've been living in abject poverty? Like, mm. and America comes and builds a factory there, and suddenly these people who have zero options, zero hope, yeah. zero future, suddenly have you know all these amazing jobs. And all the ripple effects in the economy and the education, like, doesn't that count for something? You know? And we didn't <laughs> yeah. resolve it before the end of the dance. But definitely dancing while having these conversations is a great dynamic because it forces you to, like, maintain eye contact and be physically present in a way that, like, if you're just talking with words, yeah. uh, <laughs> would be, would be, would be. Anyway, uh, getting back to Rockefeller then. Yes. Like, the thing that's interesting to me is what mm. does it mean to do someone harm? Right, because from a purely financial metric, mm. it's easy to make a case that these people were all way better off with Rockefeller yeah. taking them over than yeah. not. But I think the thing that strikes me about this idea of railroading morality is I'm going to force you to is that 
people lose their sense of agency. Like mm. before they had their own business and they uh, had, you know, whether they lived or died was based, you know, on either their own choices mm. or the sort of impersonal realities of the market. But they're only happening the, today with every acquisition that's happening. Yes, right? I know. And this is, and this is why there's like, to try. well, there's a difference though. Right. And so what, what makes, so here's the thing is that it's one thing if mm. they realize that, sorry, I think this gets to the idea. This is another thesis I have. I don't know if this is true mm. or not, but it's a idea that uh, asymmetric information is the root of all structural injustice. Okay, explain that. Right, so say for example, like uh, one of the classic examples of the political hot button these days was the existence of redlining in African-Americans getting bank loans. Where that, you know, African-American would apply for a loan to buy a house in a quote unquote white neighborhood. And the yeah. bank would say, oh, I'm sorry, your credit wasn't quite good enough. I'm not able to give you a loan. Yeah. And it's not actually true. It was just mm. because of their you know, hidden policies. They had this information. And because the algorithm that the bank used was not shared knowledge, these mm. people could be cheated and discriminated against and, and all these things. Uh, and, there was, and, and they couldn't even tell or prove that it was happening. Right. Right. Just like, you know, and the more extreme example is like the white hoods uh, that the Ku Klux Klan would wear is that mm. everyone would know whose house was being burned, but no one would mm. know for sure who did it, right? If it had been clear right. that these mm. were the people doing it, then mm. the, those who were on the wrong side of the stick could at least have mobilized an effective response, mm. right? And so this is, right. we're actually dealing with this discussion and work in a small way. Is mm. we were, I was talking with somebody who happens to be in corporate development, and there's this mm. panic reaction of, you know, there, there, there is a history uh, of certain companies in Silicon Valley, which will pretend to be uh, investors, and yeah. uh, and then they'll have a startup come in and make a pitch. And actually, the danger is not that they would get acquired. Um, the danger was more that the, uh, the big companies that's doing the acquisition would see the idea and then steal it. That's right? the danger. And yeah, then, that's the danger there. Yeah. Right. And, and, yeah. And so that. Yeah. Um, and so this but idea no. that, mm-hmm. is that if, if a big company knows something that the small company doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, or has, I mean, that's what is asymmetric power is also a source. Uh, so sorry, asymmetric power is a root of direct injustice. Asymmetric yeah. information is the root mm-hmm. of structural injustice. That could be, yeah. The, the, okay. You know, and that's the idea here is that. You know, mm. because there is this massive information asymmetry of what's going on, that mm. is, I think, I would, I would argue, is why these people legitimately felt disenfranchised. Or, mm. you know, is that, is that you know, the, 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 like, Rockefeller is willing, is winning the game. And, like, one kind of, he deserves to win the game because he's, you know, playing it really, really well. But nobody yeah. else even knows what the game is. Or what mm. the rules are. So he's right. kind of, you know, they're all fighting with one hand tied behind their back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it's never been done before. So he was making things up as he goes along. So some of the decisions he made worked out and uh, for his benefit and probably for other people's benefit. Some right. of the so other he, things yeah. for his benefit at the detriment of other people's uh, lives and their livelihood. Right. And uh, yeah. some and of them really their paid. identity, right? Yeah. You know, there's a thing like one could have imagined. Oh, uh, it's, not, it's difficult to imagine how you could have gotten there, right? Yeah. But one could imagine a world, like the one we have now, where the information is actually more transparent, where the, the accounting standards, the banking standards, yeah. so that everyone knows exactly how insolvent these businesses are. Yeah. In a, and therefore, we can do that. It's, it's difficult to imagine. So. You know, uh, I want to actually take a pause. I got five minutes left before I have to leave, and re- go back to the question of morality. Right. Now, so what's fascinating is discussion with my cousin Carol uh, when she was here for a wedding last weekend, mm-hmm. and we were talking about like what does God want, 
And mm. the idea that we came up with tonight, I talked about you know, this idea of hearts turning to God uh, that we discussed last episode, but mm. I, I phrased it as hearts that are completely yielded to him. That yeah. is what I think God wants. And I think that is the essence of morality is that mm. we are surrendering our hearts to God rather than holding back parts of it out of fear or selfishness or past woundedness. Yeah. Okay. And what's interesting okay. to me is mm. that Ron Chernow's depiction of Rockefeller is mm. sort of a blind self-righteousness that he yes. literally mm. had no room to even consider the possibility that anything mm. he did was and above board. And he even makes the comment that, in fact, his early training in childhood, where he mm. had to ignore uh, the taunts uh, of his peers about his mm. father's absence and bigamy and you know, all the right. other unsavory behaviors, yeah. mm. stood him in good stead <laughs> in making him co- apparently completely inured to mm. all the possible other concerns. And when I look right. at that from it feels to me like that even though his mind, you know, had this beautiful religious perfection that everything he did for God, everything he did for money was all the same thing and totally mm. unified and harmonious, right? The harmonious life we discussed last time. It right. feels like at some level there was a deep compartmentalization where there were just certain things he, A, he sort of like refused to let him think about and refused to let himself question his own yeah, righteousness. I think we, we all do that. We all do that. There are some other things we do suppress uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, right. Right. Maybe something that happened in the past or something that, you know, you didn't like, uh, uh, things like that. So, I mean, he's a human being, right? Like all human beings. Uh, right, but this the, is the uh, thing that you look at. Yeah, and, and I think the point is it's not so much to condemn him, but to grieve. Like, to mm-hmm. me, it's just sad yeah. that, the, he, that, you know, because of his childhood trauma, he had mm-hmm. to bury that part of himself to survive. Yeah, and right. I, right. Can, I, can, I can respect you know, the fact that he buried a lot of these things and then enabled him yeah. to become a you know, more moral, you know, husband, you know, an engaged father, yeah. a uh, precise businessman. Ethical might be too strong of a word, but he was definitely yeah. very rigorous. Yeah, I think, you know, you'll find out, uh, I mean, we'll find out more uh, the, towards the end of his life and whether it's what happens to his father and all those things uh, will come back and we'll talk about it again. And how yeah. he, uh, how that affected him and all that. So okay, and uh, I think. Uh, but, 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 but but here's the thing. This is what I'm asking, is that but like I can't help but feel sad. And mm. and and then the question is is that you know this dynamic where we um, um, end up um, you know hardening our you know our hearts is uh, like what is the thing like you said we all do this right we all are unreliable narrators of our own motivations yeah and right. logic in areas where we have been wounded what is the yeah. cure i mean we'll yeah. see that as an open question but to me this yeah. is actually a final question i'm convinced that there's sort of conscious morality which is mm. one thing yeah. and there's a value that but but underneath that and perhaps even driving that is this unconscious morality, all these things that happen uh, underneath. Yeah. And that uh, most of my challenges in life, both in terms of my own sin and yeah. brokenness. Hello? Sorry, are you still there? Yeah, no, I'm still there, there about it. So, no, I think we didn't discuss one question in this. Um, would you have done anything differently? in order to build up his business, uh, which is completely moral, completely uh, legal, completely ethical, right? How could he have built up a business? Uh, what could he have done differently with, uh, with right. the refiners, with the railroads, with the, everybody? So um, who knows? We don't know because this is what happened. Uh, right. Well, here's the question is, then then you... well, so, so I think the short answer is, I don't think there's any simple, painless changes he could have made yeah. that would have had as high a likelihood of achieving the intended outcome. Yeah. Right? Possible, so I mean, looking, back, uh, looking back, we could have said, 
eventually he had a good uh, uh, business so he could have had the same result if he paid the same rate for the railroads so maybe his profit margin would have been less but eventually it would have been okay so we don't know that well, well, well. Right, but this is a, but don't forget, everything hung together, right? Like the whole reason the cabal existed, mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 was and could potentially function was because of these incentives, right? I think this is this is the more generous, but I think fair reading is that mm-hmm. um, there was, like I said, there was no simple painless fix, right. but at the same, like, like there are different things which would have caused greater pain or greater complexity. Right. And frankly, it would have had, you know, yeah. um, you know, and that's the the, the 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 challenging thing. But I can only give you an answer that I have discovered. Okay. Uh, to the boundary, which is that mm-hmm. when I'm faced with one of these situations, which you know seems like every month or two I run into this, where like, mm-hmm. okay, there is an easy, quick fix to solve the immediate problem. Right. But it feels like it's injurious to my soul because of all these things about secrecy and self-interest mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. And what I have discovered is that if I, and I'm not saying I do this all the time, but I'm saying when I can do it, it's transformational. Mm-hmm. Is if I can wait before the God and say, okay, God, mm-hmm. I see this mm-hmm. good thing that he said. Mm-hmm. I see this horrible thing that is going on. And mm-hmm. I see lots of people that say, well, this is horrible. We have to do something to stop it. Anything is worth doing to stop this, right? Mm. And they get people angry and they raise mobs and they say, because this is so horrible, we just have to do whatever it takes to stop this. I call this the Jehu response. You know, the, the guy what who basically, fun? you know, killed Jehu, J-E-H-U. He's the guy mm. that Elijah yeah. appointed to kill um, Jezebel. Yeah. And, you know, kill right. the king and take over everything. He's like, this is so yeah. bad. But, and like sometimes God tells us to do this, right? You you mm. you do something that is you know, this guy was you basically told to commit treason and kill a king and execute a woman uh, mm. in cold blood, uh, mm. you know, because it had to be done to stop you know this horrible thing. Like and, and like I, I acknowledge that we live in a world where sometimes that is the most moral option available to you, mm. right? Yeah. I acknowledge that that reality exists. I'm not a pure pacifist. Right. You know, yeah. but but I would still say like there's a there is a karmic debt you accumulate from doing that. The alternative yeah. perspective is Elisha, who was the other person that Elijah uh, mm-hmm. appointed. Right. Maybe Elijah appointed Elisha, and Elisha appointed Jehu. Mm-hmm. Actually, now that I think about it, but right. But Elisha, and, and I think what's the opposite of that? The, the, the picture I had was the very first miracle Elisha does. He's in mm-hmm. a town. And the people of the town come to him and say, this town is well situated, but the waters are bitter. Yeah, right. And therefore, the land is unproductive. And it's like, you know, that's not a bad metaphor mm. of the world that Rockefeller found himself in. Mm. Right? This is a well-situated industry. It could mm. be amazing, but the waters mm. are bitter. The, the backbiting, right. the distrust, the laziness, whatever. Yeah. It's like, and what yeah. happens is Elisha... Uh, gets a bowl. Mm. Uh, I think he fills it with sand. Yeah. Um, and or maybe he fills it with water. And then he pours the water into the the well. The stream. And suddenly stream the well, well becomes pure. Sweet. Yeah, good water. Yeah. Still there? Yeah. Yeah, good water. It becomes he good water. Bounce the, the Bluetooth here. Okay. So, but so Elisha purifies. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, to the the vision mm. I wrote about how I saw this playing out, but like no. ah, this is the impossible thing that if mm. it was possible it would have been far better. Like what if, you know, call me crazy. What if Rockefeller actually believed in the power of encountering Jesus to transform mm. people's hearts? Mm. You know, not just in the power of Baptist morality to save mm. people's bodies, right? Mm. One could have imagined. An alternate reality, not this reality, but an alternate reality where Rockefeller was able to build these bonds of emotional trust with these people and say, hey, I'm not here to talk about business. I'm here to talk about getting your hearts right with God through the lens of business. 
Mm-hmm. And do you see how what we're doing is destroying our souls and our families and our economy? And can mm-hmm. we come together under the blood of Jesus to just understand mm-hmm. one another and understand what we're doing to ourselves? And can we mm-hmm. together come up with a better way forward that, uh, you know, will heal our industry, which is desperately broken, but will also heal our hearts and perhaps yeah. even more importantly, heal our relationships with one another. Yeah, yeah. Right? And like, but again, I think, you know, uh, people are all point, product of their times, Ernie. I, I don't think he had the uh, uh, teaching that's well, available nowadays yeah. and, the, you know, uh, all the ways of approaching uh, God and all those things were not there in the 1890s, I think. So anyway. Well, they were there, but they weren't there in the business context. Yeah. Right? There were monasteries right. and pietistic mm. movements and mystics all over, yeah. but they were not part of this world. And right. that's why I talk about my friends in the monastery. It's like, okay, there was a season where it made sense to compartmentalize. You had the monks yeah. over here, the warriors over here, the merchants over here, right? right? But right. Like, and I guess that's my point, is that the only way I can imagine doing better mm. is to start dissolving these boundaries in the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Right? Because if you dissolve these boundaries without the grace of God, then you just get even more chaos and confusion. Right. But the idea is that, and this is and this isn't so much about Rockefeller. I guess this is about me. Is that like I feel like <laughs> this is the call, this is the opportunity we now have because the Rockefellers and the Jehus, uh, you know, and the Warriors and the mm-hmm. Robber Barons created a world where we have the luxury where we have the role models, where we have the history, where we can look yeah. back on their stories and say, okay, they did an extraordinarily wonderful thing at an extraordinarily horrible cost. Yeah. And let's yeah. honor our fathers and mothers, not by condemning them, not by lionizing them, but by comprehending them, by seeing mm-hmm. everything there and then seeing them through the eyes of Jesus. And it's like, huh, if it was possible for Jesus to show up here that would have changed everything. And it was probably impossible in his world, given the information and resources and role models he had. And then there's no precedent. There's no precedent for that. But now we do. And so this is actually, you know, Mm. this is my meeting I'm running to now, maybe, I don't know, Mm. is we're having an on-site meeting. We're trying to figure out strategy and technology and direction Mm. and all these things. Mm. And it occurs to me that, like, I'm in this world where I have, basically no precedence or no right. direct precedence, but there are pockets of this like, okay, this guy over here did this yeah, thing, yeah. which was incredibly yeah. generous. This person yeah. did this thing over here where he brought people together, warring factions mm. in um, the Rwanda genocide together under the blood of Jesus. Mm. And it's like, this is my, this is my quest. I wasn't expecting mm. to go here, but this is where we end up is mm. how do I, create a precedent for what it looks like to reconcile marketplaces and mm. businesses and societies and hearts and relationships together under the blood of Christ? And how do we establish that as the new norm for what it means mm. to follow Jesus in the world? Right, right. Okay. Uh, I think with that, we may have to end. Yeah. Do you have a couple of minutes after this? Can I call you? Uh, Kind of, but I'm like literally like right at my next okay. meeting. So okay, that's okay. Um, okay, no, you can call later on because we want to find out about the wedding and also about the kids coming over. So okay, okay, call us when you have time. Thank you, Dad. This was a great talk. Really okay, love you, love you, Ma. I love you. Okay, we'll talk again next week. Uh, next okay. week, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks. Okay, you mentioned maybe Thank not. We'll, we'll play it by ear and see what the, okay. the schedule right. is. Okay, okay, okay. Mm. love okay. you. Love you too. Bye bye. Bye bye.